Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Our text this morning is Psalm 32. We are going to begin a series in the Psalms. I was in a Zoom meeting like many of you were when this whole pandemic started. I have a group of pastors that I meet with monthly and we go through a book together and because we couldn't meet together we were on a Zoom call and the subject of what we were going to be preaching next uh, in light of the pandemic uh, was up and so we were going around saying what our plans were and time and time again someone was saying that they were going to preach some portion of the Psalms and the reasoning was because we are all so filled with various emotions during these uncertain times and of all books of the Bible it is the Psalms that most speak to these emotions and so man after man was saying that he intended to preach through the Psalms That's one reason we had planned on doing some psalms in July for our summer Wednesday nights, but we were unable to do that. I, at the time, had already had my series on wisdom and then the Holy Spirit planned, and so I did not intend to go into the psalms, but since the pandemic continues, I will now do so for the next few weeks as we look at various types of of psalms. We are not going to go verse by verse through the psalms. There are 150 psalms, so that would take us quite a while. We are instead going to look at a sampling of the psalms and what they have to offer us. Now, Psalm 1, that's not our text, so don't turn there. Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed. It's the same word that begins the Sermon on the Mount. And it is not just a word that means happy. It really goes deeper than that. It speaks about a spiritual joy or contentment. And so my question to you is this. What would it take for you to be spiritually content and have joy? What would it take for you to be blessed? Well, I think that one of the first things we would say is that we want this virus to be over so that life can go back to normal. I would be blessed in the biblical sense of the word, not just using the hashtag, but in the biblical sense of the word, I would be blessed if we could go back to normal. Well, if we're honest with ourselves, we might want to conclude that we weren't all that happy when the year began. We were still filled with anxiety and doubt then. Oh, yes. In our perspective today, we could look back and we would say, at least I was happier, and that might be true. But did we have true joy and contentment before the pandemic? I would be happy if I had financial security, relational intimacy, that is if I had a a true love relationship with someone, or maybe career advancement, and on and on the list goes. I'd be happy if all of the violence and turmoil in our nation would come to an end. I'd be happy if there were no division and strife within our country. And on and on we could go here. And while I hope all of these things would indeed come to an end, I'm not convinced that they would bring for us instant happiness. 
And yet I think you're smart enough to know that this sermon is not about to conclude that those are the things we ought to be looking for in which to find contentment. That those worldly pursuits, as good as they might be, or any other worldly pursuit, is not where we are going to find ultimate contentment and happiness. Well, if we know that, why do so many of us, deep down, pursue those things and spend so much of our time on those things. You know, I've heard people say through the years, but doesn't God want me to be happy? And I know what they mean by that, and I know that on the surface it sounds okay, but the truth is virtually every time I've heard someone use that phrase, doesn't God want me to be happy? It's in the context of them about to share with me some sinful decision that they're about to make or some sin that they are already involved in and they are trying to rationalize or justify their behavior. After all, doesn't God want me to be happy? The implication is that God is more interested in our happiness than he is our holiness. But today we are going to discover the exact opposite that God is indeed more concerned about our holiness than he is our happiness. But we are also going to see a connection between these two things. And by that I mean this, that when we pursue holiness, happiness, as the biblical writers record it, is the natural byproduct. In other words, following God in obedience, or as we've been talking about, walking in the Spirit, is the path to happiness. But let's not take my word for it. Let's hear what King David has to say about this in Psalm 32, a psalm of forgiveness. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin." Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble and surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curved with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now you'll notice at the very beginning there, if you have a title over your um, psalm, and I do not mean the the bold title, as mine says, blessed or the forgiven, but right underneath that, it says, a mascal of David. Well, what in the world is that? We know who David is, but what is a mascal? 
Well, we really don't know the answer to that. There are two main options, neither of which we are entirely sure of, though this word does occur in 12 of the Psalms. Some say it's a musical note of some type. You will remember that the Psalms are the hymn book of ancient Israel. When we study the Psalms, we are looking at their hymn book. Others say it is a word that has to do with instruction, or more specifically, the giving of instruction. In this case, from David to others. And I think this is the more likely answer here. So this is a, this is a way of saying this is a psalm that is here to instruct us. You may have noticed a second odd word. It's found three times over to the right of the verses. I did not read the word, but it's there. It's the word salah, which is an untranslated word, which means that's not English. That's a transliteration of the Hebrew. And once again, we really do not know what this word means. It is probably a musical note of some sort either calling for a pause so that we take notice of what was just said, or because of what was just said, it may be calling for a rise in voice. What we do know is the background to this particular psalm, and that background is David's sin with Bathsheba, the subsequent murder of her husband Uriah, and ultimately Nathan's confrontation with David about all of this. This story is found in 1 Samuel 7, or beginning in 1 Samuel 11, I should say. And you are familiar with at least the part about Bathsheba. Perhaps no sin is more well known in all of the scriptures than David committing adultery with Bathsheba. His men are off at war, and David has remained back at Jerusalem in his palace. And one evening, he looks out over the palace grounds, and in the distance, he sees a woman who is on her rooftop, and she is bathing. And so he calls for her, and he commits adultery with her. This man, after God's own heart, has allowed lust to take control of his heart, and the lives of several others are going to be shattered as a result. You can read the rest of the story on your own, but the Cliff Notes version is that Bathsheba becomes pregnant with a child as a result of this sin. David tries to cover it up by bringing Uriah back from the battlefield, assuming that he is going to be with his wife, but Uriah proves to be a man, at least in this instance, of more integrity than David himself. And he refuses to do that, and so David sends him back to the battlefield with instructions to place him in a very hot part of the contest and withdraw and allow him to die, which indeed happens. David then marries Bathsheba, but the child of this adulterous union is going to die. Nathan the prophet famously comes to David and tells him a parable. And at the conclusion of this parable, David, with righteous indignation, passes judgment on the man who would be, do what the parable talks about. And then Nathan famously responds, you are the man. And as a result, David writes Psalm 51. That is his famous psalm of confession. Where there, among other things, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Many believe that Psalm 32, the one we're looking at, is the fulfillment of David's promise in Psalm 51 
that, Lord, if you will forgive me, I will instruct sinners in your way. So Psalm 32 is obviously written sometime after Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. In Psalm 32, he is rejoicing in the fact that he has that joy restored. Not to mention the fact that this is at least a year or so after the events that I have just talked about. Because Nathan's confrontation with David takes place after the birth of the child. So it's been roughly a year, if not a little more. A year of living with a guilty conscience. A year of remorse and regret. Thinking about all of the consequences that he's dealing with emotionally, relationally, and certainly spiritually. And so with all that, we turn our attention to Psalm 32 itself, the second psalm in the psalm book that begins with that word blessed. And here in Psalm 32, you don't see this in the English, but it's actually plural, which is intensifying the meaning. Again, this is not just a surface-level happiness. This is a deep-seated and spiritual joy and contentment. So how do we get there? Well, first we acknowledge, or, or the first thing we do is the acknowledgement comes first. Before we can experience the joy of forgiveness, the acknowledgement of our sin must take place first. There are actually four different words in the first two verses to describe sin. Now, if you're familiar with the Psalms, you know that Hebrew poetry is very good at this. Oftentimes, synonymous words are used one line after another to say the same thing, but to do so in different words. But sometimes the words have a nuance of meaning, and I think that is the case here. Plus, the combination of all four of these words gives us an indication of just how extensive David's sin and ultimate confession is. We see the word transgression in verse 1. It is a departure, a rebellion against God and His authority. Which, by the way, is something all sin ultimately is. David acknowledges that in Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned. Now, we know that David had indeed sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. And in fact, in one sense, you could say he had sinned against all Israel. But at the same time, he says, against you, speaking to God, you only have I sinned. Because ultimately, all sin is a transgression, a disobedience, a rebellion against the authority of God. We tend to talk about our sin in relation to one another. And there is a place for that. We do need to do that. When we sin against someone else, we need to confess that sin to them and seek their forgiveness. But here we are talking about sin as a violation against God. So the second word is the word sin, which is the more common word we use today, if we use that word at all. And it is the word that speaks about a violation of God's law. In biblical days, it was an archery term. That is, it meant that you missed the target. You fell short of the mark. Your arrow did not reach the intended target. Now, for us, perhaps we need to think in terms of a shooting range, since I suppose more of us shoot guns than we do arrows. I do not, though a couple of years ago, some guys here from the church did take me to Bud's up in Sevierville and let me borrow their guns, and we, we shot. And I did occasionally hit the target. But more often than not, after I pulled the trigger, my response was, where did that go? 
Because number one, I have poor eyesight and I can't see the target. And number two, I'm not very good at shooting. And so there were many times that I missed the target. And that's what the word sin means. A missing of the target. And then in verse two, we see the word iniquity which is a more ancient word, I think, in our minds, a Puritan word, perhaps we would say. We don't use it much anymore. It speaks of being corrupt, twisted, or crooked, morally distorted or perverted. And then the final word for sin there is the word deceit, which, of course, brings to mind some kind of fraud. And likewise, there are multiple words to speak of the fact that all of this has been forgiven, which, of course, is the focus of this particular psalm. I don't want to bore you with word after word and their definition, but we cannot rejoice in the forgiveness until we realize how deep our sin is and therefore how gracious God's forgiveness is. This is said to be St. Augustine's favorite psalm. And in his latter years, he had it inscribed on the wall by his bed so that he could consistently and constantly read it and be reminded of its truths such that he said the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself as a sinner. Something Paul makes abundantly clear in his great book of Romans. And so we notice the word forgiven, which has the idea of our sins being lifted, the burden being removed, that burden having been taken off and placed on Christ. David will describe that burden in verses 3 through 4. But to experience the joy of forgiveness, we have to feel the weight of the burden of sin. And then still in verse 1, you see the word covered, an imagery taken from the Day of Atonement. That's the day that the high priest, the one day a year that the high priest would take the blood of the animal that had been sacrificed into the most holy place where he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. David has now experienced the covering of his sins. He had covered them up for a year, and now he has experienced the covering of those sins by God. In Proverbs, we read this verse, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy, the mercy seat. Finally, we had the word count in verse 2. It's it's an accounting term. It means impute. In the spiritual sense, it means our sins are reckoned onto Christ's account, while at the same time, his righteousness is put on our side of the ledger. I know I've spent a lot of time this morning on these first couple of verses and the specific words that make those verses up, but again, I, I want you to see how fully and completely David is confessing his sin, and it is only because of that that he likewise experiences the height of forgiveness. Now, we might be tempted to conclude, well, of course David had extensive confession because David had extensive sin. I mean, he committed adultery. He he had a man murdered. He lied to cover all this up. And on and on the list goes. But my sins are not nearly that serious. My sins do not rise to that level. And that kind of thinking will always keep us short of experiencing the joy of forgiveness. I mean, maybe I stole a pack of gum when I was a kid. I'll, I'll acknowledge that. Maybe I lied as a teenager in order to avoid punishment. 
Maybe I don't always do what I say I'm going to do. Maybe I get a little sharp in my answer to you, especially during a pandemic. But all of those are minor issues compared to what David did. And all of those are things that we should readily forgive one another of. And obviously, God should forgive us. But as long as we continue to think like that and fail to realize and acknowledge the depth of our depravity, we will never experience the joy of forgiveness that David writes about here. Suppose a wealthy person comes to me and they say, I, I, want, to, I want to pay all of your debts. Let me know what you owe and I want to pay all of them. Now, which of those debts that I have do you suppose that I'm going to conceal? Do you think I'm not going to come clean about a car loan that he is offering to pay? Do you think I'm not going to tell him about student loans that have been weighing me down for years? Or do you think I'm going to readily acknowledge all of my debts because he is offering to pay them all? And so it is when it comes to sin. We must acknowledge our sin before God who stands ready to forgive them all. But if we do not acknowledge them, Notice in verses 3 and 4 that refusal brings consequences. And David knows this from his own experience. He is now thinking back in verses 3 and 4 to that year or so time frame when he was silent about his sin. When it says, when I kept silent, that's talking about his refusal to confess. Now we tend to think that as long as no one else knows about our sin... Remaining silent won't affect anyone. But David makes it clear that unconfessed sin does affect someone. It affects you. Now, if we admit that, we tend to think of spiritual consequences, and these do occur. That is, our fellowship with God is going to suffer. We acknowledge that. We know, like David, that we will not experience the joy of our salvation as long as we are remaining in unconfessed sin. We do not feel close to God and sometimes wonder where he is gone. Our, our prayer life becomes anemic if it exists at all. And our desire for the word of God and the church of God tends to wane. But surprisingly, that is not what David mentions. He doesn't talk about any of those things here. Though again, he does state his loss of joy in Psalm 51. Here he speaks about the physical consequences the aching of his bones and of his body. And notice in verse 4 that he acknowledges that this comes from the hand of God, that it is God who is bringing these physical consequences upon him because he is suppressing his sin, he is experiencing guilt and anxiety. Now, I need to be quick to add that this does not mean that every time you or someone else has a physical issue, that it is invariably the consequence of some sin. While we must acknowledge that it is the case sometimes, we must not leap to the conclusion that it is always or even mostly true. We have this tendency to think, well, God must be getting me for something, or to look at other people's lives when we see they, them going through difficulties and conclude the same thing. That is not what I am talking about. But we all are aware of the anxiety that we feel when we are hiding something, and this anxiety or guilt can manifest itself in physical ways. We all know how, uh, how uh, remorse can grow and gnaw at the inside of us. 
even over long periods of time. There, there is no statute of limitation when it comes to unconfessed sin. And we can certainly identify with the illustration at the end of verse 4, where David speaks about the, the sapping of his strength, the loss of vitality because of the heat of summer. You know that Israel is, is a desert in large measure. In fact, when we were planning a trip there a few years ago, and I first began organizing the trip, the tour company was quick to tell me, you do not want to go in summer. You see, my first thought was we would go in summer so more people would be able to go. But they were very quick to tell me, no, no, you do not want to take a group to Israel in summer because it is too hot and you will not be able to walk the miles that you need to walk with the heat. We know this very well. Every summer we experience this heat wave and every summer we act like we don't understand why it's happening. We've lived here long enough to know this is going to happen every summer. It is going to get hot and it is going to get humid. At least this year we've had enough rain so we don't have the drought that we sometimes do. But we experience the heat of summer. I was cutting my grass this week and yes, I still push mow my yard. And so after about an hour of push mowing and then 20 minutes of fighting with the weed eater, I was exhausted. And my, my energy, my vitality had been sapped. And I had to rest for a while to regain that energy. That's what David is talking about spiritually here. His unconfessed sin had taken the vitality out of his life. And it had left him exhausted. And it just may be that this is part of the issue with your loss of energy as well. We must at least conclude that refusing to confess our sin does bring consequences, even if our consequences might be different from David's. But there are also con consequences with confession. So we see in verse 5, which is the pivotal verse in this psalm, confession brings forgiveness. Here David is recounting the after effects of Nathan's confrontation and his subsequent confession of his sin. We have a saying, confession is good for the soul. And this is even more profound in the Christian sense because confession brings forgiveness. You remember that verse from our study of 1 John. If we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in verse 5, we see some of the various terms for sin again and the aspects of forgiveness. The word forgave literally means to have the burden of sin lifted off. You remember before it was a heavy burden that was wearing him down. His body was aching. His bones were crushed. And now that has been lifted off of him. The weight is gone. Now we are, of course, dealing with specific sins here. But this is also true of the weight of sin in general. When we confess our sin and by faith trust in Christ... The weight of sin is placed on Christ and we receive his righteousness instead. Therefore, all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. But that does not mean that we don't need to confess or that we will not feel the weight of those sins when we refuse to confess. We will, just as David did. But we can also experience anew the release that forgiveness brings when we confess a particular sin that we have been silent about. So confession brings forgiveness. And then finally, verses 6 through 11, forgiveness breeds 
instruction. This is the part of the psalm where David is now going to be teaching us. He's going to be instructing us from his own experience, teaching sinners his way. David wants others, that is in our case, you and me, to know the joy he experienced once he confessed in great contrast to the sorrow that he had before confession. So in verse 6, he encourages us to follow his example of confession. And that now is the opportune time. There is no reason to put this off. And then in verse 7, as a result of his confession, God is now three things to him. First, he says God is now a hiding place, which means he is the one to run to for a place of refuge. Now, don't miss the contrast. In verse 4, God's hand was heavy upon David. And now in verse 7, it is to God that David runs for refuge. That's post-confession. God is a hiding place. It reminds me of a psalm I often use during funerals, Psalm 46. And Psalm 46 begins, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. As a result, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Doesn't it seem like those are the times we're living in? That the earth is giving way because of all that we see going on in our world? Everything seems so crazy. There is so much division and violence and protests and pandemics and the list goes on. And yet, in the midst of all of this, have you found God to be your refuge? Have you found God to be your hiding place? Secondly, David says that God is now his preserver. That is one who keeps him during times of trouble. The enemy tries to destroy us, weaken us, tear us down, and yes, even get us to lose our faith during times of trouble. But when we keep short accounts with God, he doesn't promise no trouble, but he does promise to preserve us through that trouble. And then third, he says God is his deliverer. Again, not meaning that no trouble will come, but meaning that we can trust God to keep us and bring us through any and all troubles. Now, last week I talked about God's guidance, and frankly, I was told by several people that I wasn't specific enough, that I was too vague. And they were right, because it's a very difficult subject. But look at verse 8, where we get another clue to what we talked about last week. When we confess our sin, and then we find God to be our hiding place, our preserver, and our deliverer, then there is this promise of guidance and counsel for the way we should go. So here is another component of what we talked about last week. When we confess our sins, God guides us. When we are silent, so is he. So if you want God's guidance and the joy of forgiveness, David says, don't be like a horse or a mule. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, a horse is prone to run away especially the wild horses. They don't come to you. They run away from you. A mule, well, we know what they're known for. They're stubborn. They won't do what you want them to do. Neither of these is the path forward. Instead, confession revels in the love of God and rejoices in the forgiveness of God. We tend to think of confession in a, in a negative sense, and I hope you've seen in this text that it's not negative all, at all. Yes, it might be hard to admit our guilt before God, but the burden that we are experiencing is far greater. 
and the benefits that we will receive are even greater still. So do you want to be blessed? That's verse 1. Blessed is the man. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to praise God and have joy? That's how the psalm ends. Then confess your sin to him and know his forgiveness. And this is an excellent psalm to transition into the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is a reminder, a pictorial, a visual reminder of how our sins are forgiven. That we have the forgiveness of sins because Jesus Christ gave his body and blood for ours. That he died in our place. And of course rose again to verify all of this. And so you received a, a cup on your way in. If you did not, you can go get one right now. They're back at the back at all the doors. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to join with us. I'll walk us through this, obviously different than we've ever done it before. So I'll have to give some instructions, and you'll have to stay with me. Matthew chapter 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So let me pray. Father, I thank you for the body of Christ that was nailed on the cross for us. Thank you that he paid the debt for our sins that we could experience your forgiveness. And I pray as we take this small piece of bread as a reminder of your body that was given for us. We would not only praise you for what you've done, but we would rejoice in your forgiveness. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so take the, and just peel off the upper layer and take the cracker and eat. This is my body, Jesus said. Matthew's gospel goes on to say, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Let me pray once again. <clears throat> Father, we now thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ, shed for the remission of our sins. For your word says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But because Christ's blood was shed for us, and because we by faith have trusted in you, we can have this forgiveness that David is rejoicing in. We can know that all of our sins are forgiven. Not just a few, but all. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. And so I invite you now to take the other tab off and drink.
Now, if you just hold on to those, we're going to ask you to just keep them with you and then bring them uh, on your way out. Some of our deacons will be at the door with trash baskets for you to put those in on your way out. So let's stand and sing a psalm of praise to conclude our service. <laughs> 